Banen. Cut to. Exterior. Interior. Restaurant. Bar. Club. Day. Night. Action. Guys, what is going on? This is the Restaurant Fiction Podcast, where we review fictional restaurants, bars, and clubs featured in TV and film, as well as talk about the screenwriting process. I'm your host, Monis Rose, and today's restaurant is called The Peach Pit. Yes, that peach pit the one featured in the show, Beverly Hills 90210. And we are not talking to the creator of Beverly Hills 90210, but we are talking to the showrunner and the man who even created the Peach Pit in the first place. Yes, we are going to go inside his head of how he even came up with the diner and the creation of it, including the mega burger and the significance of it and why it is even in the zeitgeist till today or still today. As well as we're going to go down a little history of Beverly Hills and old school Hollywood. This man's name is Charles Rosen. That's right. This is the interview with Charles Rosen and the review of The Peach Pit. Enjoy. We record Restaurant Fiction, guys, in Miracle Mile, Los Angeles. We are right next to Beverly Hills. Now, for those not familiar with Beverly Hills, you have your flagship boutique and high-profile fashion jewelry stores. You have your, no disrespect to the word bougie, you have your bougie hotels and Uh, law firms, and even fine dining restaurants. You do not expect there to be a diner. Not just that, you do not expect there to be a place for teenagers. Yes, diner and teenagers all wrapped into one. Well, there is. This is called the Peach Pit. Everyone has like their 1950s LA diner, especially who lives here long enough. You walk in, the first thing you notice, the jukebox. I mean, that is really what sells it. We're not talking about uh, Johnny Rocket's cheesy jukeboxes with the counter. No, we're talking about one large jukebox. The number to push is G5. You push that, the whole place goes banging. The owner of this establishment takes pride in the history of Beverly Hills. They take orders on a vintage center, one of those vintage ticket circles. It's an open kitchen. It kind of is ran by teenagers. And in a way that adds credibility to the place. All right, so let's talk about the food. It's simple. I mean, we're not talking about a big cheesecake factory menu, which there is a cheesecake factory now in Beverly Hills. We're talking about, you know, grilled cheese. We're talking about a Greek salad. We're talking about PB&J. I think the only really standout is the Mega Burger. It really tasted kind of like the burger at Apple Pan. Apple Pan is in West LA, kind of on on Pico for those not familiar. You know, you like to squish it. It's that no frills diner burger. It's simple. 
And you know something, guys? This is LA food. When someone thinks of Beverly Hills, I feel that they think, ooh, la, ta-di-da, tasting menu, you know, duck confit, da-da-da. But really, guess what? People want their diner. Charles, what would you have to say about the Peach Pit? Well, the Peach Pit is, uh, you, you made the reference to the apple pan, the Peach Pit was a direct clone, uh, you know, a television clone of the Apple Pan on uh, on Pico, right bef- near Westwood. To the extent that I actually went to the owners of the Apple Pan to ask if I could use their name and recreate their diner, and the answer was no. And so, if I couldn't do the Apple Pan. Well, what would be like the apple pan? Well, a peach pit. And that came to me in about five seconds, and that's how that was named. One of the, really one of the important things about the peach pit was the jukebox. The apple pan has no jukebox. You know, we were a high school show geared to a teenage demographic. But, and, and Darren Starr, who created the show, used to say that if we could be true to the high school experience, then the, their younger brothers and sisters would start watching the show. And there was truth to that. But I also wanted their parents to watch the show. So I figured we had to have some outlet for music that they would recognize. And when we would choose oldies, we would look for ones that would have a repetitive beat that wasn't based on lyrics, but more the sound, you know, that would have repeating, uh, uh, you know, refrains in the choruses and things that you would play under dialogue. One of the things in licensing a song and putting it into action is you don't want to fight the dialogue if you can help it. And only one time did we... Uh, in the second year, just I loved the song, I still do, and I cranked it up, and Mr. Spelling was angry that you couldn't hear the ending dialogue, we didn't care. It was Elvis Costello singing The Other Side of Summer, and if you don't know that song, go out and go right now to YouTube and listen to it. And by the way, the network hated that I used so many oldies in the beginning. They said, why did I have to do it? And I said, because it worked and it would bring in audiences. And many times, two, three years after that, and we'd run into um, y- y- people of my generation then who were in their late 30s, mid-30s, early 40s, and they all talked about how they love the, that song I picked that week and this and the other. You'd get a lot of good positive feedback about the music we used at the Peach Pit and you know the oldies. Why is the Peach Pit significant to... Beverly Hills 90210. It gave us a place for our cast to be together that was apart from the high school. It gave us a place for, as you, you mentioned, where Brandon Walsh could get a job. And by getting a job, he then was, we were able to differentiate the boy from Minnesota than the north of Sunset homeboy like Steve Sanders or Dylan McKay, who was living in a hotel and, and feeling sorry for himself. So, you know, it was the different group uh, of that. And it also was real important to have it be not a fancy, glitzy restaurant. In fact, in the second episode, Brandon gets a job in a place like that and makes fun of people who order fennel. This was more authentic, more tried and true, and different from the image of what 
and possibly stereotypical image that people might have of Beverly Hills because Rodale Drive didn't start happening to the late 70s. One of the things about the apple pan, um, excuse me, the peach pit was that one of our extras, we had a big black man who was always working the grill, Willie. Yeah. And, you know, it wasn't a place of being prejudiced. So I said that was one thing. Uh, also, we did an episode in the second season where a developer who's one of Jim Walsh's clients wanted to tear it down and build a, uh, whatever he wanted to build, a luxury building or this. The importance of the Peach Pit to the community came out. So it's kind of a resource. It's a you know, a place to be. You know, it's not so much the price of the food or even the quality of food, but the atmosphere that is projected by it. How does, though, the mega burger at the Peach Pit compare to either the hickory or the steak burger at the apple pan? Are they one of the same or no? Is Did you at least visualize, hey, no, if I can't film the apple pan, I'm going to make my burger better? I would think it's it's a little bit of a combination between the apple pan and a, and a little big, bigger piece of meat. There was a place called Woody's that had, was the first place that put like a half pound, a pound of meat, you know, a big burger. So the mega burgers with cheese, I always saw as being maybe twice the size of the smaller hickory burger, steak burgers that are at the apple pan. But, you know, in the beginning of the season, no, the mega burger wasn't quite as used as much in dialogue as reference to, but one of our writers who came in the second season just loved, I think, the, the phrase mega burger and, you know, Willie, put another mega burger on the grill. Take us back to the writer's room of Beverly Hills 90210. How do you decide to place a specific scene in the peach pit? Or even how often is a scene in the peach pit discussed? That's a good question. Now, knowing that the peach pit was a on our set, it was one that if you're going to build a set for a television show, you better use it. And so that was part of it. And the basis, too, is if you're going to be able to maximize your production efficiency you try to put enough scenes in one location so you don't have to move because moving takes time. So oftentimes in the peach pit, we'd shoot a whole day in the peach pit. But it's even more true if we went on location. Very rarely did we go on location, do three pages, and come back to our stage. That was a bad day, or that was a script that just didn't board well. You had choices of where to put these teenagers, a coffee shop is a choice, uh, even in the high school cafeteria. Well, the high school cafeteria wouldn't be because it, we you couldn't be there in the night. If you would have asked me where the peach pit was, it would be more like Doheny and Wilshire, coming away from Beverly Hills, almost on the outskirts of Beverly Hills, or Olympic and, 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 uh, and Doheny, you know, just, just not, just on the, the fringes of it. Beverly Hills, too, you know, for, was really a lot of mom and pop stores. Some of them were upscale, but nonetheless, they were owned by people who lived in the town, and it was a very self-contained upper-middle-class community with a very wealthy old pocket of Hollywood wealth north of Sunset. My neighbor growing up in Beverly Hills was Groucho Marx, so that's... No. <laughs> you bet your life. <laughs> the first city in the United States to vote, pass a non-binding refer referendum against the war in Vietnam was Berkeley, California. 
The second one was Beverly Hills, California. So it was a kind of a progressive liberal community at that point. Not that way now, but it's a, it's a vastly different town. And that's why there's no more peach pit there. But there still is an apple pan, so we're okay. One of the uh, quintessential episodes regarding the peach pit, or at least what it was, like the real, hey, this is the peach pit, is an episode called Fame is Where You Find It. For the people that don't know, it's where uh, Shannon uh, Doherty's character, Brenda, she plays this 1950s filled with spunk and charm waitress named uh, Laverne. It seemed that writing this scene was really fun. How it came about was that the network executive that we were dealing with, one of the good ones over there and who stayed with the show and rose in the network hierarchy, a man named Dan McDermott, called me up and said, you know, it's all these social issues. We need to have a light show. We need to have a lighter show. You know, can't, can't we do one that's kind of funny? And so the question then became, well, how about this? How about the idea that, you know, Brandon gets discovered and goes Hollywood and his sister has to come in and she wants to go be a Hollywood actress and so she dresses up as this person and by being this kind of alter ego, um, real old school with the glasses and the bun on the top of her hair and the thick New York accent, we had a blast writing it. My wife was pregnant at the time, so we wrote most of it while she was on bed rest. Maybe it was about a month before my son was born, my third child. But the thing about that really made us laugh the most was not having to do with Laverne, but in the Brandon subplot, we kept having him... Um, it was like somebody was calling him, I think, a cheesemeister or something, and they would pour water on him over and over again. And we just got great pleasure writing that, too, and got us to let it put our cast in its place in this. It just was a fun, fun episode, and we laughed in this. And, and the question was, was this really happening or was this a dream? Was Brandon's whole thing a dream? It was, And we weighed it. Should it be? Shouldn't it be? McDermott decides, let's make it real. So we filmed the whole episode, and the episode's ready to go, and the Fox now hires a new head of current programming who came out of the feature business, who later became the president of the network and of the 20th Fox, man named Sandy Gruschow. And Sandy, um, who it remains uh, today a really good friend, but Sandy says, oh, I've, well, I've watched this episode, and it doesn't feel like the others, and so um, we're going to have to reshoot some of it. And I went, no, we're not, <laughs> you're airing this. And we, you know, we didn't have to go around about that, because when you used to deal with the Fox Broadcasting Company, all you had to say is, well, you want to do it, then you're going to pay for it. And they were, what's that word I used? Oh, yeah, penurious. They were not going to pay for it. On YouTube, they have some of our clips that are there. And uh, I just happened to watch it about maybe three weeks ago. And, yeah, it holds up. Shannon did a great job. What's the craziest scene that took place in the Peach Pit that either got cut or, on the flip side, even surprised you on making it on air? It's going to be a little longer of a story, but I, but, but, <clears throat> but I hope you guys are ready for this. I remember we're, we're winding down on the first season, and the network wants me to come in to talk about future episodes. And I figured, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to start the new season by 
how I spent my summer vacation, which we ended up doing, by the way, between the fourth and fifth years. But this was the one where I pulled on the lot and learned that we were doing summer episodes, that we were not going to go out of production. We were going to stay in production. Most shows stop production in about April and then pick it up again in July or August. Well, we were lonely that we had three weeks off and then we're going forward again. They got SAG to give a waiver, all this stuff. And we're learning this. And what they asked us was to create a cliffhanger, something that would be the end of the first season and want you to get back to the second season. Well, I figured that the best cliffhanger you could do would be a girl thinking, she's late. Am I pregnant? And if you think back to the first year, you know, there was Brenda and Dylan, and they actually courted a little bit. He got AIDS tested. There are all these different things. And now it's prom. And in those years, a high preponderance of teenage girls would lose their virginity on their prom. Uh, we, there was a group called the Center for Reproductive rights or something that was really dealing with teenage sexuality at the time, which was kind of out of control in the late 80s into the 90s. And they became our advisors on this particular episode. I knew that that would be a good cliffhanger. The scene that I was interested in writing was a daughter having to tell her father that she's sexually active. Because I remember a, a girl I knew in high school who was sexually active who had to tell her father that and her describing it to me. And there was that kind of poignance and pathos to it. And I thought, oh, that's good. I can re summons that up and that would be good. Okay, so if I wanted a cliffhanger and I wanted to have the aftermath, I had to have the sex act somewhere and we put it against the prom. I was not that... That would be the least interesting part of it. We're in the room at prom, and they're <clears throat> going to have sex, and we don't see it. We didn't care to see it. If you remember in the prom episode, for you guys who were fans of it, might remember that afterwards, Brenda, who was wearing the exact same dresses as Kelly Taylor was that night to the prom, is kind of by the glow of her face, Kelly, who was sexually active, can tell that Brenda has just lost her virginity. And Brenda's excited. She just lost her virginity to the boy she loves. And we took it as there. It was the joy of sex, as it were. Not anything untoward or assault or any of the kind of ugly sexuality stuff. You could do it, but she had lost her virginity, and she didn't show remorse. And the network flipped out. And this was a period of time where 90210 did not have very good ratings. Then the Gulf War broke out. And after the Gulf War, we were getting like 750,000 new viewers an episode. And parents are finding us. And, and critics are finding us. And then all of a sudden, our lead loses her virginity. So what kind of role model were we supposed to be? Moreover... The, the, the station group owners of the fledgling Fox uh, broadcasting company, well, I could think I can say this, kind of parroting our idiot in the White House right now. They were shithole stations, shithole companies, Channel 90 in St. Louis and all these other stations who went nuts. And the Fox broadcasting company was pretty angry about that. And yet, the entire week of promoting this show the trailer was i'm late and that scene happened of her admitting i'm late i'm late i'm late in the peach pit 
Well, you learn that, and you got to go out on Luke Perry's face, and episode season two will begin in, in a month. We used to be on a Thursday night, and three o'clock in the afternoon, a decision was made where I wasn't at all brought into the loop, where Barry Diller uh, informed Aaron Spelling that they were, uh, and a man named Jamie Kellner, who became head of the WB, a very powerful executive, decided that they were going to cut that scene. And they ended up taking uh, 30 seconds out of our show. I believe you call that censorship. And indeed, that happened. And I didn't know it until maybe 15 minutes before it was going to air here in the West Coast. And Mr. Spelling left for the day. I immediately called him. He didn't return my call to late Saturday night, in which I'm actually working at home in my office with one of our writers developing the second season. And I was not real happy. And that's when Mr. Spelling said something to me that was the, maybe the truest statement about me that anyone had ever said before, maybe after, which was, you'd be nothing without your passion. Because he, he admired how passionate I was, and it was that passion that fueled the show that we're still talking about 30 years later. But that was a rough moment, and that happened in the Peach Pit, so that's your answer. Damn. I met Barry Diller for the first time right after that. <clears throat> We'd already been censored. This fight had already happened. He was eating at a restaurant called Morton's that was in West Hollywood where all the network and studio executives would eat on Monday night. It was kind of like a club thing. And our good friends liked to go there for their wedding anniversary. There was Barry Diller eating with uh, another gentleman. My wife was going, go over, talk to him, talk to him. And I'm scared of him, totally intimidated. But the other person goes to the bathroom, and I go up to Barry Diller, and I say, hi, my name's Charles Rosen. I'm executive producer 90210. And he was very gracious. He stood up. He shook my hand. And what he said then tempered my entire war plan against the Fox Broadcasting Company, which was he said to me, well, your show has a chance. And we'd already had this huge first year, but we, he put it in perspective. You have a chance to really do something. Subtext being, don't blow it and get so mad about this. We moved on. I stayed on for six and a half years worth of TV that we crammed into five years. I did 144 episodes. The show did 298 episodes. Advice I would give to anybody is always look for the subtext. You wrote with your wife on Beverly Hills 90210. What are some tips for having any writing team, not, not only a team with a significant other? Sure, I've thought about this a lot because I've collaborated with other people too. There are two things. One is it's really best to think that your writing partner is either your equal or exceeds your equal. That they're the one that really is pulling the wagon. Because if you don't respect your writing partner, then you're, it's really not a partnership. The other is, is that not all writers are great at everything. A few are, David Kelly and, and some of the other, Ryan Murphy, and some really some of the interesting people that are in Hollywood. They can do everything. But most writers have certain things that they're better at than others. Karen, particularly in those years, was really good in, with dialogue. And I was 
kind of an idiot savant when it came to story structure. I could beat these stories out in two days. Really quickly, how many scenes did you need? What would be said? What order they would go in? But I think it's the idea of the collaborative experience and the respect you have for your partner. So that, and that they can fill in the gap that might be your shortcoming. What's it about food, restaurants, and writing that mesh so well? Interesting that you say this. I remember a a writer colleague of mine who was on a television show. It was a show that people thought was going to be really good and it didn't quite pan out and was done after a season. And I asked Ed, I said, what was the sh- what was it like working on the show? And he said, eh, not worth gaining 10 pounds over. And that is, you know, you eat, you're right, you're nervous, you, you don't go out, you're, you're there. I mean, a big thing in, in our writing room, and it was, it was kind of annoying, you know, we would, would gather usually about for like a 10 o'clock meeting or so, give you enough time to work off the late night you probably were doing to get stuff ready. So you come in for the morning and immediately they're passing out, what do you want for lunch? You know, I just had coffee and cigarettes. So I remember that being a big deal about where we were bringing the food in and what kind of food it is. And usually, and Mr. Spelling did not like to go out for lunch. So he kind of expected all of his executives and people to stay in for lunch. He had a chef, his own chef and a butler and all of those, you know, people right there. I remember the first time me and one of the producers in the first season were invited to have lunch with Aaron Spelling. And basically you got meat on white bread. And when the other guy (laughs) asked for cheese, he got Velveeta. How has your storytelling style changed throughout the years? Well, one of the things that happens is I used to write all these interesting social dramas, television movies, pilots that were a little out of the ordinary. I was hired a lot to write <laughs> uh, because of my calling card script, which was about a, uh, a woman that tries to get a young black boy off the streets of New York who's dealing pot and he's six years old who happens to be a genius, was called The Fierce Dreams of Jackie Watson. It was in the Village Voice, won awards, was made many years later as a TV movie uh, with Alfie Woodard as the star. But at that point, so that was what I tried to do, stuff. So I, I was hired to write Blacks and Women. That was pretty much what people wanted. You know, they wanted movies like that. They weren't that many women writing. There weren't that many minorities writing. They needed movies with heart. And they'd say, well, what's the Jewish boy doing? You know, and they'd bring me in for that. And after 902 and 0, I was typed as somebody who wrote mainstream in high school. Even though I don't think our show was just that, that was the perception of it. Yeah, but you did St. Elsewhere, you did Northern Exposure. You know, what have you done for me lately? And what are you most known as? Because you like, people like to type you, and this is what you do, this is what you know how to do, this is where your big success was. So it eclipsed everything else. And so I tried to think very commercially. And that was kind of my down, not my downfall, but certainly wasn't writing with the same degree of heart. Let me put it this way. Yeah, my wife would be mad if I said my career. I I just wasn't on the good lists anymore. I wasn't being hired to write pilots. I wasn't thought of to run shows, all sorts of reasons. What ended up happening, of course, is that I started teaching a little bit at UCLA. I started um, doing a few things in tech. And then when we've lived at the beach down near Venice for the last five, six years, and all of a sudden I got my spark back to write. When you get older, you find that you, you have a little more experience 
you know, so, you know, write what you know and write with the things that you've seen in life and put together and stuff that you live. So I think my, I used to tell my staff what I wanted out of their scripts would be, you know, fuller, richer, deeper. And now I think I can write fuller, richer, de- deeper. Biggest difference is I write with a lot more humor now. Uh, I'm almost a comedy writer at this point because the world's a joke and you might as well write about it. Guys, thanks for listening. If you want to look into more all things Charles Rosen, be sure to watch all of those episodes of Beverly Hills 90210 and pretty much any TV show or movie he's been a part of. He said uh, you can Facebook him if you want, so just uh, look him up on Facebook. As for me, my name is Monis Rose. You can find me at www.restaurantfiction.com or at the Apple Pan because I'm going right now. Cut to exterior, interior, restaurant, bar. Carl's Jr.'s new guacamole double cheeseburger is only 299 bucks. You forgot the decimal? Only 299 bucks. Not decibel, decimal. The guacamole double cheeseburger is only $2.99 at Carl's Jr. Oops. Available for a limited time. Price participation may vary. Tax not included. The House of Roll journeys far and wide to bring you exceptional quality kitchen and bath fixtures. In all of this, you'll see the details of your own story. The story of a life well crafted. Welcome to the House of Roll.